Well, we've been talking about no more excuses, and Noah's going to close out that portion for us tonight about kicking those to the curb and standing up and acting like a man and not using excuses anymore when we just are apathetic or passive. But some of you have asked, what are we going to do next semester? And so we will, we will take off, tonight will be the last night, and then we'll take off the rest of November, we'll take off all of December, we'll take off the first Wednesday of January, and then that second Wednesday is when we'll start. We'll start January 11th, and we are going to be looking together at this concept of total forgiveness. If you had an opportunity to come to Awesome August, you would have heard on the very last night from R.T. Kendall. R.T. Kendall is an incredible author. He was a great pastor, uh, and he wrote this book called Total Forgiveness. Now, we're going to use that similar to how we've used this book. We're not just going to read the book, but we're going to use some of the pieces in there, and we're going to utilize it to walk through getting freedom from bitterness and things in our lives that have been there for years and years. I want to read you a couple quotes from this book because I got the book like on a Wednesday, and I was done with it by the next morning. I couldn't put it down. And what I realized was there was a lot of people in my past that I thought I had forgiven, but I really hadn't. And I'm going to show you what I mean by that in just a second, because there's a quote that it literally was like I was kidney punched. Now, I don't know if you've ever been kidney punched, but I have, and it'll drop you to your knees. And it was just like the Lord just hit me right between the eyes and said, you say you've forgiven people. But have you truly forgiven? So let me read you a couple quotes from this book. And I'm just telling you, we sell it in the bookstore. If you get an opportunity to read it, it's a, it's a great book. But it's going to enable us to have a lot of discussion around the table. And it's also going to enable you to think back to some things that you've gone through in your life and ask yourself the question, have I truly forgiven that person? On page 43, he says, relinquishing bitterness is an open invitation for the Holy Spirit to give you peace, his joy, and the knowledge of his will. Brother Steve says when you have bitterness in your life, it doesn't affect the person you have bitterness towards. It's like you're building a cage or a prison for yourself and you lock yourself inside of it. He says a refusal to forgive means that God stands back and lets you cope with your problems in your own strength. Now let that sink in for just a minute. Let me read it one more time. A refusal to forgive means that God stands back and lets you cope with your problems in your own strength. I don't know about you, but I know what happens when I try to deal with stuff in my own strength. It says, um, he says on page 129, Jesus wants us to move forward past the offense into a lifestyle of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not just words that we say He says in the book, it's a lifestyle. I love what he says about this. And by the way, if you're married, I mean, this is one you've got to grab hold of. He says, true forgivers destroy the record they might have used to vindicate themselves. They destroy the record. Because when you forgive, you can no longer become a historian when things get bad again and bring stuff up in the past. If you've forgiven it, it has been forgiven and it needs to be forgotten. And by the way, what is, what is the Bible says? It says that vindication is the Lord's. But this is the one that really, really got me. Forgiveness is not total forgiveness until we bless our enemies and pray for them to be blessed. Here's what he says in the book. When somebody hurts you, and by the way, I'm not just talking about they said a couple words that may have been a scratch. I'm talking about they have deeply hurt you. 
He says, until you're actually praying that God blesses that person, you haven't truly forgiven them. Because Jesus said to pray for those who persecute you. And what I realized in my own life, if I've, I've said the words I've forgiven, but I'll be honest with you, I've prayed for them, but it hasn't been a prayer of blessing. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I've prayed that the Lord would deal with, him, with them with justice and with wrath. You ever prayed that kind of prayer? And what does he say? You need to forgive that. Let the Lord handle that. And you pray God's blessings upon them. Guys, I really want to encourage you. I, Noah, after I read the book, I told Noah, I said, Noah, this book has changed my life. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying like the Bible or anything, but it has given me a new, fresh perspective on life. And Noah thought about it for a week or so. He said, Derek, I, I want to take our media team through this book. Will you just lead them through it over four or five weeks? And so we spent about four or five weeks. We just walked through it. And, and, and even as we walked through it, the Lord showed me so much. And when we got done, Noah said, hey, we need to talk about this in here. And so prayed about it, and we said, and I'm just telling you guys, I really hope that you'll come back, and I hope you'll bring a friend with you because I really believe the Lord's gonna bless this next semester, okay? Well, I wanna throw it to a, I'm gonna give you a soft toss, okay? This is not some deep, theological, really tough question, okay? But uh, just to get the table discussion going, and as Noah makes his way up here, we are gonna ask the question, what is your favorite Thanksgiving or Christmas tradition? That could be when you were a child, it could be right now, but just take a couple minutes to discuss that, and Noah will be up here in just a few minutes. All right, guys. Did you guys hear anything that was like incredibly unique in terms of a, of a favorite tradition? Any, any super unique things that you guys heard out there? Tamales. Is that Thanksgiving or Christmas or both? Both. Just every day? And we, uh, growing up, we always uh, did presents on Christmas Eve, and then we'd get everything, and then we'd go to bed, and then Christmas morning, we would wake up, and there'd be one, there's four of us boys growing up, and so Christmas morning, there'd always be one, one more present under the tree that was from Santa uh, to all of us, and it was like the, it was like the Nintendo 64, or the, the thing that we really wanted, and so we always looked forward to Christmas morning uh, because of that, and so it's really fun. Uh, so I've got now four kids of my own, and we try to trying to create traditions and all that. It's just really fun. Uh, but what we've found is is that actually we actually stretch now Christmas over two or three weeks. So we'll get all the presents and like we'll do like one or two a day because it's just like total chaos otherwise. But we love I love tradition. I love Thanksgiving. Uh, I love just this whole holiday season, and I'm really looking forward to to getting a little bit of family time as we go into into this, this season. Hey, all semester, like Derek said, we've been talking about the idea of no more excuses and really combating the excuses and the, the lies that the enemy tells us and puts in our mind and the excuses that we so often use in our lives. And we're saying there is no place for those in our lives. We're so easy to just jump to these excuses, but that's not what God has called us to. As Christians, we are called to engage at a different level, and that's what we're going to talk about here in just a minute. And as Christians, it's one thing, but especially as Christian men, we are called in Scripture to lead and to not be apathetic and not just to take the easy excuse. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. He says that we are as men to be on the alert, to stand firm in the faith, to act like men, and to be strong. 
And what's Paul saying there? He's saying, hey, we got to keep our antennas up. We got to stand firm in what we believe and what the Lord has taught us and stand firm in the scriptures. I just love it. Act like men and be strong. He's not talking there about be physically strong, but he's talking about being strong in your faith. And that's what we're ultimately, when we're talking about, when we're talking about no more excuses this entire semester, it's not just no excuses for the sake of no excuses. We're talking about how we are called to be strong and how we are called as men to take a stand. You see, the Bible teaches us that there is no place for apathy in the life of a Christian. So often, we see it in a lot of men that they, they face conflict or they, they get a wound at some point, whether it be from family or church or at work or somewhere in their life, and they just retreat and they just go into the little shell and they just become totally apathetic. But the Bible says that there's no place for that because we are in a war. And when you became a Christian, that's not when you entered the war. You were in the war from the day that you were alive. But when you were a Christian, you went from just being in the war to taking an offensive stand in the war and taking an aggressive stance and now fighting back the enemy. And so as a Christian and as a man, you are called to reject all of these excuses that the enemy throws our way. We're, we're called to reject the excuses that just pop into our head so easily. And we all have them two or three times uh, uh, since you've probably been at church. There's uh, excuses for this and that. It's just all the time popping into our head. And we're so good at them. We're so good at excuses. I read a story one time uh, about Steve Jobs, who was the founder and the, the brains behind Apple. And they were, uh, they were uh, developing one of their computers. And, and Steve Jobs was notorious for two things, for, for being really late on delivering things and for spending way too much money doing it. But his whole thing was it's got to be perfect. We have to, the, the experience has to be right. The way the package opens, it has to be perfect. Everything just has to be just right. And so they were working on shipping one of their early Macs, and, and they were looking at it, and, and they were presenting it, and, and they were already missed the deadline and, of shipping it, and they were way over budget. And he looked at it, and it just, it just didn't feel right. The way the menu system, every, it just didn't right. And so he said, hey, we, we've got to start over. We, we, we can't do this. We, we're we're going to start over. We're, we're going to redo the whole thing. And one of his guys said, said we, we can't do that. We're, we're behind. And he explained all the reasons. We're behind schedule. We've spent too much money. We're having to do this. The stockholders are going to be angry, all this type of stuff. And right there on the moment, Steve Jobs fired the guy. And somebody else stood, uh, spoke up in that moment and said, hey, you can't fire him. He's our best engineer. And Steve Jobs said this, he is our best engineer that thinks we can't. And ever since I heard that, it's always stuck out to me. He's the best engineer that thinks we can't. And really, that's the, the position that we're supposed to, to take in our life. It doesn't matter what we can't do. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you're going to take these excuses, then you're of no use to what you're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to push forward and make the right decision no matter what it costs. But the whole idea of excuses, they're not new to us. They're not new to, to our age. All throughout Scripture, we see example after example of people making excuses. Adam and Eve is the very first human, human beings right there at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and says, hey, you can eat anything in this garden except for this one tree. Anything you can have, just don't eat this one. And what do they do? They eat the one. And then God comes and he confronts them. And the Bible says, and the man and the, his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called to the man, and he said, where are you? 
Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And we all know that God wasn't asking these questions because God didn't know. God was asking because he wanted Adam to know where he was. And he was wanting Adam to confess what had happened. Did you eat from the tree that I had commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, a classic excuse here. Well, it was the the woman that you gave me. You see, two excuses, real smooth that Adam tries to pull out here right there at the beginning, but it doesn't work. You see, oh, the woman that you gave me, so it was her fault and it was your fault, Lord. You are to blame. Both of you are to blame. I didn't want to do it, but it was the woman that you gave me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and that's why I ate. So the Lord asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, it was the serpent. He's the one that deceived me. And right there points to somebody else. Another story in scripture is uh, one of my favorite men in all scripture is Moses. You guys know the story. Moses is, is raised up in the, in the house of Pharaoh in Egypt. And, and he is eventually goes out into the wilderness in, in hiding because he, he killed an Egyptian for abusing one of the Israelites. Israelites, which is one of his uh, brethren. He was an Israelite himself. And you find this situation where God says, hey, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. I know that they need saving. I want you to go, and I want you to lead them to deliverance. And right away, Moses comes up with the perfect excuse. Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or, or recently. And even since you've been talking to me, because of my mouth and my tongue, they're sluggish. And the Lord said to him, who placed a mouth in humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, hey, I can take care of your mouth, Moses. That's not a, that's not a, a hindrance here. If I call you, I will equip you. I will give you the words that you need to say. Now go, and I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And then just straight up, he says, please, Lord, just just send somebody else. So right there, Moses, who would end up being somebody that God would talk face to face like a man would talk to his friend. So God and Moses would have an incredible relationship and Moses would learn to submit to the Lord and follow him in an incredibly deep way. But right here at the beginning of their, of their relationship, he's, he's giving excuses. Hey, I can't do what you're asking me to do because my mouth. I can't do it. Please send somebody else. I'm, I'm not the person to do it. And then one of the, I think this, the saddest excuses in all of scripture and one of the saddest stories is of King Saul. So King Saul is the first king of Israel. And you see, he has gone out. God has placed his spirit on him and he has exalted him and set him up as a man who is to lead Israel. And they go out to war at some point and, and the enemy's coming and there's fear, which we'll read about here in a second. And they're supposed to make a sacrifice to the Lord. God told them before they went out to make a sacrifice but there's very specific ways to make these sacrifices. You don't just go out and make a sacrifice to the Lord. And you've you got to do it the way that God calls you and tells you to do it. And this is what we read about King Saul. That the Philistines had gathered to fight against Israel. They had 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And they went up and they camped at Michmash east of Bethaven. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in the caves, in the thickets, among rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan, and they're, they're fleeing. They're getting out of there. They crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. 
He waited seven days to the appointed time that Samuel had set, Samuel the prophet. But Samuel hadn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And then he offered the burnt offering. He did exactly what he was told not to do. And he chose to disobey the, the Lord in that moment. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, well, when I saw that the troops were deserting, so it was their fault, and you hadn't come when I thought you were going to come, and the Philistines were gathering and starting to come at Michmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor, so I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. So right here you see Saul saying, hey, the troops were running, they were scared. The, you weren't even here when you were supposed to be here. The troops were coming at me. I didn't want to do it, so I had to force myself to do this thing. Look at me, such a victim of this situation is what Saul is trying to set up. But listen to what Samuel says. You have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. And he goes on to talk about how God is going to pick a man, David, after his own heart and replace him as king. And you see this moment, this excuse that, that Saul listened to, this fear that overtook Saul and that he, he acted on. In that moment, everything changed for his kingship. He lost the kingship because of this sin, because of this fear, and because of this excuse. I heard somebody say one time that every time you sin, you're committing spiritual you're, uh, uh, you're playing spiritual Russian roulette. And what they meant by that is that you never know when that sin is going to be just one too far. You see, God is very patient with us, but the Bible also teaches that God also has a line and that God will not be mocked. And at a certain point, consequence comes for our actions and, our, and for our sins. And Saul had just then crossed that line and God said, hey, because I would have established your kingship forever, but now I'm going to replace you with a man after my own heart. We could go and spend the rest of the week walking through Scripture and looking at different excuses that men and women in Scripture have used time and time again. And we realize that the excuses that we use today are nothing new. They've been around since the very beginning, and they will probably always be here with us. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend a little time around your table and I want you just to, to think about this and ask yourself this question. What excuse are you needing to deal with? See, we all have excuses in our life, whether it be maybe why we don't share the gospel the way we should, or, or maybe it's why we're not leading our family the way we should, or I'm not giving my all at work, I'm not being honest at work, or, or maybe it's I'm not reading my Bible because, because I, I have four kids and my oldest is five years old and they're just driving me, driving me like so tired all the time and I can't, I can't find time and just finding these excuses and not saying that it's not hard, but there are excuses that we sometimes play into and we play the victim. So what is the, uh, the excuse in your life that you need to deal with? Spend a few minutes talking around the table and we'll come back and we'll walk through a passage of scripture. All right, we'll go ahead and continue. What I want us to do the rest of our time here together is walk through the first chapter of 2 Timothy. We're gonna look about the first half of that chapter. We're mainly gonna focus in on one verse, uh, verse 7, 2 Timothy 1, uh, verse 7. But we're going to go ahead and read 1 through 6 as well to get a, a ramp up and get context and idea of who's saying this, why they're saying it, and how it applies to us. So we'll jump in, 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 4. 
It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that, my, so that I may be filled with joy. What you see here is the standard greeting that you see in a lot of the New Testament letters, and I really wish we would adopt this even today, and I wish we hadn't gone away from it. It was really nice to, to say who the letter is from at the very beginning of the letter. Otherwise, you have to wait till you get to the end of the letter, like, who's saying this to me? And, oh, it's, it's this person. And so here at the beginning, he said, hey, I'm Paul, I'm writing this, and I'm writing this to Timothy. And what do we know about Timothy? We know that Timothy was a spiritual son, if you will, to Paul. Paul mentored and discipled Timothy and invested his life into Timothy. Now, this book, 2 Timothy, was written towards the end of Paul's life. It's believed that maybe one to two years after Paul wrote this is when Paul was martyred there in Rome. And so Paul, at this time, is in Rome. He's in prison, and he knows that the day of his death is near. He knows that any day now, he is going to face death. He says this later on in the book, uh, towards the end, he closes by, by saying this to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is close. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul understood that the end of his life was coming, but as he faced the end of his life, his mind and thoughts did not turn to himself and, and his regret for maybe what he could have done differently or that he's not going to get to live longer or he's not going to get to go to these places or do this. Paul's thoughts went to Timothy, to the next generation of Christians that were coming up after him. Because Paul understood something that I think today as American Christians, we, something that we, we neglect and something that we've forgotten is that Christianity was never meant to be lived alone. This is not something that is just for me to do, and this is not a Lone Ranger type thing where we're going to be isolated, and, and I don't really need the church. I might show up once a week and go to church just because that's what I'm kind of supposed to do, but I don't really need the church. Timothy and Paul understood that the church, the believers, needed each other. And so when Paul was, was about to die, his thought goes to Timothy, and he pins this book, this letter, to Timothy to give him some last advice so that as Paul hands off the baton to the next generation, they'll be able to run and continue running and not miss a beat, and that the gospel would continue to go forth, and that it wasn't reliant on Paul. Paul didn't think the gospel was about him. He knew it was about Jesus Christ, and he wanted to pass that on to the next generation. Paul was Timothy's mentor. And what, we, what, I, what I want us to, to think about and be challenged by here is the fact that we all need those mentors. We all need, Pastor Steve says it all the time, you need a Paul in your life, somebody that's ahead of you in the Christian walk that's encouraging you and, and, and challenging you and, and correcting you as needed. And you need a Timothy in your life. You need somebody that's behind you in their walk with the Lord that you can pull up and that you can lead and that you can give advice to and you can challenge. Because ultimately, uh, David Platt, who is a, uh, a pastor up in the Washington, D.C. area says, said this one time. He said, the gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. The gospel didn't come to you just for it to stop and to end with you. The gospel came to you so that then you could take it to somebody else. It came to you in order to reach other people that only you can reach. And that's what 
Paul and, and Timothy understood here is that, that Paul realized that the gospel had come to him and now his life was ending and he's handing information and encouragement off to the next generation. And Tim, uh, Paul goes on to say this, I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and now I am convinced is also in you. What's he saying here? Hey, the faith that you have, your mom had it before you and she loved the Lord and she followed the Lord and sought the Lord and that's the reason you're following the Lord. And before she loved the Lord and followed the Lord, her mother loved the Lord. And he's just reminding Timothy of the spiritual heritage that he has in order to look back and say, hey, look at all these people who have gone before you and prepared you. Now it's your turn. What are you going to do? And then he says this in verse six. Therefore, I remind you, because of the faith that has lived on and been passed on to you, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. And what, what Paul is saying here is, hey, that, that faith that's in you, that's been passed on, that I've taught to you, that your mother taught to you, that your grandmother taught to you, you need to keep that rekindled. Do not let it die. I love building fire pits in my backyard with my kids, and they love, uh, they love me roasting marshmallows that they then say they don't like, and they just like eating the, eating the raw marshmallows. I end up with a ton of roasted marshmallows that I don't even like. And so, but we, we love doing that together and spending time together. But if you, anytime, uh, I'm sure most of you have built fires here in their life, you know that a fire that is built, if it doesn't get fed, if it doesn't get kindled, what does it do? It just dies. See, fire in and of itself will not continue just to fuel itself. It needs a kindling. It needs to have life brought to it. It needs that oxygen. It needs the, the more uh, extra branches. It needs the oxygen. It needs you to blow on it. It needs to be built up and rekindled so that it can continue to live. And our faith is the same way. Once you come to know the Lord, if you just say, well, I, I'm a Christian now, and you just go on your life and you never spend time with other Christians, you never spend time in prayer, you never spend time in your Bible, and you're never challenged, encouraged, discipled by other believers, that faith is just gonna die slowly and be pulled to back. It's not just gonna push itself to the front and build stronger and stronger. It's got to be kindled. It's got to be rekindled in your heart. And that's what Paul is saying here. Hey, as somebody that's gone before you and somebody that's looking at you, you've got a lot of challenges ahead of you. And I'm gonna challenge you, do not give in to letting your faith die, rekindle it. Paul is challenging Timothy here in this moment to take his faith seriously and to not let it die. And so I wanna ask you guys this question. We'll spend uh, just a quick time around the table. I want you guys to, to answer this question. Who do you have in your life that loves you enough to be honest with you? Just like Paul here is, is looking at Timothy and he's not, this is his farewell letter to Timothy and he's not just saying, and we'll see here in a minute where he's gonna challenge him on some other things as well. He's not just using to say, hey, remember those great times we had and, and hey, you're doing really good and hey, you're gonna do great. Looking forward to seeing you in heaven. Paul is using this as an opportunity to challenge Timothy because Paul was not impressed by Timothy. Paul was not trying to just get in good favor with him. Paul wanted to challenge Timothy to take it to the next level. And who do you have in your life that loves you enough to be honest with you? I have a guy that I, I meet with every Thursday, and he's about 30, 35 years beyond me in the Christian faith. And I cannot tell you how invaluable that time is to me every single week for an hour and a half or so, where we just sit down and we talk about our walk with the Lord and, and marriage and raising children and how we read our Bibles and how we pray and just hearing him talk about these things it is such an encouragement to me and a challenge to me. And I need to hear those things. 
and he looks at me and he'll ask me how, I'm, how my Bible reading is and what's God telling me? What did God tell you this week? What did God tell you today? How have you been in your prayer life? Are you praying consistently? And, and we're talking, we're, we're answering and talking honestly with one another about these things. And I need that in my life. I need to have my faith rekindled on a daily basis. I've got to, to rekindle it every single day if I'm going to do it. And one of the best ways to do that is through a mentor and through somebody to disciple me. And what we'll see is a lot of times if we isolate ourselves and we don't have this mentor, what is it? These excuses just start to come into our ear and say, well, you don't, you don't need to read your Bible today. It's, it's fine. You, you were up late and you were doing something good. You were working up at the church. You were doing something good. Don't worry about it. You can just sleep in a little bit. And you have all these excuses that come into your mind and you start to listen to those excuses and you start to believe those lies. And you need people who are going to be honest with you and going to challenge you. So talk around the table. Who do you have in your life or who have, have, have you had in your life that loves you enough to be honest with you in those areas? And if nobody, I encourage you, pray that God would bring that person to your life. So we'll spend two or three minutes and we'll, we'll wrap up looking at the uh, verse 7 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you guys don't have somebody that's in that position in your life, I really want to encourage you to seriously pray for it and, and ask God to bring that person into your life. I believe he'll answer that prayer if you're willing to pray it and if you're actually willing to have that person come in and ask you those questions. I know for me it's been completely invaluable. So Paul is talking to Timothy and he's challenging him, hey, rekindle that faith. He goes on to say this, therefore I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God has not given you a spirit of fear, but one of power, of love, and of sound judgment. God, he, he says here, I want you to rekindle it. Why? Because God has not given us a spirit of fear. Do not, be, be, do not fall victim to the fears of this world and to the victims and to the, to the excuses of this world and, and the reasons why you can't. God, uh, Paul is encouraging Timothy here. God has not given you that spirit of fear. That spirit is not from God. It is of the enemy. And we need to reject it with everything that we have. Now, I want you to understand this. This, Paul, like we, this book, like we talked about, was written by Paul to Timothy. But while this book was written to Timothy, this book was written for you. You see, Scripture was not written to us originally. There are original uh, recipients who are, who are in the Scripture, and they're identified. And these are the people who are the original recipients. The reason Paul originally wrote this letter was to get it to Timothy. But God, God had a greater purpose for this letter so it was written to Timothy, but it was written for every single one of us. And I want to tell you that if Paul were here today, he would look every single one of us in the eye and he'd say, men, God has not given you a spirit of fear. That fear that you have, anything or other translations will say timidity, that, that re reluctance, that feeling to withdraw and to pull back and to use those excuses is not from a spirit that comes from the Lord. That is a spirit that comes straight from the enemy. And the Bible says here that God did not give us that spirit. But God get, did give us a spirit, thankfully. God gave us his Holy Spirit. And Paul here gives three characteristics of that spirit in our lives. He did not give us a spirit of fear, but he gave us a spirit of power, of love, and of sound judgment. Let's just walk through those three things really quickly and what that looks like in our lives and how, it, how we combat the excuses that we have and the, the reasons why we shouldn't or can't or the reasons we fail, all those things. It's this spirit that empowers us to push through those and to do what God has called us to do. It is a spirit 
of power. Not of fear, but of power. The Bible says this in Romans 8, 7 and following. The mindset of the flesh, so the way we naturally think as people, is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's not able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Before we look at this last verse, here's what all that means. If the Spirit of God is in you, that means you're a Christian, you're a true follower of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have that Spirit inside of you. If you do not have the Spirit of God in you, then that means that you are not a true follower of Jesus Christ. And what he goes on to say, now you've got that Spirit. As believers, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. And if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. And what's he saying? He's saying there that the Spirit is living inside of you, and that Spirit is the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, he has now placed inside every single follower of Jesus Christ. And that is the Spirit of power that God has given us. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, one of power. And we see in Matthew 28, verse 18, right before Jesus uh, ascends to heaven, he gives what we call his great commission. And he begins it by saying, all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. So as the, the conqueror of death, after he raises from the, get, from, the, from the dead, God gives all authority to Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say? Now you, therefore, go. And he commissions us and he gives us his authority. Brother Steve talks about this all the time, the difference between power and authority. He said, a police officer does not have the power to stop a moving car, but he has the authority to do so. In the same way, just because we have the spirit of power in us does not mean that we have power in and of ourselves to go fight the enemy and to fight these lies and, and to, to reject all these things, but we do have the authority in Jesus Christ to do so. And that is an authority that we need to take hold of and that we need to claim. But so many of us leave that power on the table and act like he doesn't even exist in our hearts and that it's not even there. And we, we live as victims and of our excuses day after day after day. And meanwhile, this spirit, the Holy Spirit of power is living inside of us just waiting to be, to be uh, used in these parts of our lives and to push us and to lead us towards victory that Christ has for us. So God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he has given us a, a spirit of power. The Bible then says that God has given us a spirit also of love. As Christians, love is how we are to be characterized. But so often, that's not. So often we are characterized by things we're against or things we're, we're fighting or just infighting with, with each other. I don't like this. I don't want to do this. I don't think we should be singing that song. I don't like that color carpet. I don't like the candy that Derek picks. I don't like that, whatever it is. To be fair, I don't like the, the candy that Derek picks either. I wish there were more Almond Joys in there, if I'm being honest, and maybe a few more hundred grand. But I'll let them know so that come January we'll have some, some of my favorite candy in there as well. But all these things, obviously joking there, but all these things that we fight and, and that are, are dividing us. But Jesus says, no, no, you're supposed to be known by love. In fact, the night before Jesus' death, 
he had his disciples together and he was giving them one last instruction. And one of the last things he leaves them with is this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And Paul is writing to Timothy, hey, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but that spirit he has put inside of you is a spirit of love. And it is that love in the spirit, the Holy Spirit's love that enables us to love one another. You see, when we act in our flesh, when we act in our own will, when we act according to what we think, we'll never be able to love each other the way that Jesus calls us to love each other. But when we submit ourselves mutually to the Holy Spirit and allow him to use us and flow through us, only then will we have the love that Jesus talks about here. Another uh, famous passage here talking about the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. It says here that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things as these. He goes on to say that if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What he's saying there is, hey, if you're living according to the Spirit, then we got to walk the way the Spirit walks. And these are the things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things that should be characteristic of our lives. And an interesting thing here is that, you know, there's, uh, there's nine characteristics there, but he doesn't call it the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit. It's a singular word. And what does that mean? This is not something that we can just pick. Oh, well, I can have love and joy, but I'm not very good at patience. Don't, don't, don't test me in that area. No, this is not something that you get to pick one of and say, well, here are the, here are the fruits that I'm going to uh, embody of the Holy Spirit. No, this is one package. This is one packaged fruit. If you have the Holy Spirit living in your life, all of these things will be true of you. If any of these things are not true of you, then there's an excuse in your life that you're listening to, a lie in your life that you're listening to and allowing the enemy to steal away what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is a single fruit of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. And when we are living according to the Holy Spirit, then we get to experience his love for us and for one another. And only then do we realize that God truly has not given us a spirit of fear. There's nothing that we should be timid of or afraid of because he has given us a spirit of power and of love. And the Bible goes on to say that he goes on, he, he, Paul says, he power of love and of sound judgment. Now, translations change this word a lot. Some, this is the Christian standard version. Some say self-discipline, of power, love, and self-discipline, of self-control, of a sound mind. What the word means is it's somebody that's wise and that they're prudent, they're paying attention, that they're sensible and they're reasonable, and they're using their mind, and they're using their mind in a way that is effective, that they are setting their mind firmly on something. They're not going to be shaken. They're not going to be... Uh, back and forth, just flip-flopping on what they think or what they should do. They're going to firmly set their mind on the things of the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying. Hey, the spirit that God has given you, it's not one of confusion, because God is not an author of confusion, but of order. And that is the type of mind that God gives us. And that is the spirit that God has put inside of us. The Bible says that we're to be strong and courageous all throughout Scripture, you see those words repeated over and over again. You see it a lot with Moses and Joshua. God says, hey, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid of what's coming before you. Be strong. Only be strong. Only be courageous. Brother Steve says all the time that the two fangs of the enemy are fear and discouragement. And if any time you, you sense those in your life, you can know that the enemy is nearby and telling you a lie and giving you an excuse. 
if you feel afraid, and if you feel discouraged. Brother Steve says all the time that God will never make you afraid in that regard. There is a natural, a, a very reverent fear of the Lord, but it's not the type of fear we're talking about here. It's not being afraid of a situation or a situation like that. Or it's discouragement. God only ever puts courage into us. God does not say, say discouraging things. God does not tear us down. God builds up. And so when you feel that, that, uh, that fear and that discouragement, you know those are lies from the enemy. We're to be strong and we're to be courageous because God has not given us that spirit of fear. That spirit of fear comes from the enemy. It's a lie and it only leads to excuses that we've been talking about here all semester. As a believer, that is how each one of us should be defined. Not by fear, not by timidity, but of power, a spirit of power, of love, and of a strong, sound mind. And that's how God has equipped you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is not something that God will give you one day if you follow him enough and you read your Bible enough. That is something that you got day one of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But so often we neglect it, we forget about it, and we act like it doesn't exist. So because of those things, God has called us to this, thing, to this, this holy calling that Paul will talk about here. We'll wrap up here by, by reading the, the rest of this, and then we'll send it back to the tables. So Paul says that God did not give us, rekindle the faith, rekindle what God has put inside of you, because God has not given us a spirit of fear. And he goes on, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us, and he has called us with his holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. And this has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So what is that holy calling that he talks about? It's the gospel. We are to live according to the gospel and to be ambassadors of Christ for the gospel. It is a holy calling. The Bible says that the Old Testament saints longed to see the day of salvation, but they realized it wasn't for them. And that even today, the angels of heaven long to just peek into salvation and look at it, but it's not for them either. God has chosen us, people living in this time, to be recipients of the gospel and we are stewards and ambassadors of the gospel that we are to take forward. Because guys, if we don't take it forward, Memphis will never hear about it. If we do not take the gospel, then the people that God has placed in your life that maybe only you can reach, the people that only will listen to you, the people that need the hope of the gospel, they'll never hear if we're not faithful. And so every time the enemy speaks into our life, it's very strategic. And what he wants to do is he wants to discourage us and give us excuses to make us ineffective for the holy calling that God has placed on your life. See, we hear holy calling, and, and we, we talk sometimes about a call to ministry and a call to preach the gospel, and we act as if God only places callings on pastors' lives. But God has a calling on every single one of your lives. Some of you God has called maybe into ministry, but some of you God has called to, to be teachers or to be educators or to be electricians, whatever you are doing and God has called you to do, you're supposed to be all in there and to be an ambassador of the gospel for there. And all the time, the entire time, the enemy is going to be whispering things into your ear and giving you those excuses to make you ineffective in what God has called you to do. He wants to take that calling away from you. 
And I want to challenge you, encourage you to reject those excuses and to say, no more excuses in my life. I'm not going to allow these excuses, these lies to take what the enemy has for, the, the Lord has for me. I'm not going to allow the enemy to steal this from me and ultimately to steal the gospel from somebody else that I'm supposed to take it to. But I am going to reject the lies and reject the excuses. I love how Timothy, uh, Paul finishes here to Timothy. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And that is why I suffered these things. Paul here is in prison. He's locked up. He knows his death is coming. He's saying, hey, that, that gospel, that holy calling, that's why I'm here. You see, Paul could have backed up and said, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm just going to back up from this gospel. I'm not going to keep doing this when he saw his arrest coming. But when he saw his arrest coming, what did he do? He dove head in first. Because this is why he said that he is willing to do it for the sake of the gospel, because it's not about him, it's for the sake of the gospel. But I am not ashamed, listen to this, because I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. What day is it? It's the day of his death, the day that he was going to see Jesus Christ and his faith would be made sight. He starts by, by telling Timothy, Rekindle that faith. Do not let it die. Let it burn inside your heart. And if you do that, he goes on to say here that I am convinced and persuaded that he is able to carry you all the way to the end. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to make excuses. We're going to find opportunities every day to fail and to mess things up. But God every day has new mercies and he's willing to forgive us and to give us another chance. I've said all the time, that if I were God, which thankfully I'm not, I would not have chosen us as people to be the ambassadors of the gospel. This incredible news that God sent himself, went to the cross and died as a human being to save us. With a message that incredible, I would have given it to the angels. Somebody I knew wouldn't have messed it up. But God in his goodness to us allows us to be ambassadors of that gospel. And as we carry it forward, Paul says this, and I'll say it with him, I am convinced that God is able to carry us through to the day of Christ Jesus. And so as we, as we wrap up this semester and as we, we evaluate and confront these lies and these excuses that we have in our lives, I want to ask you just this final question for you guys to ask around your, your table. What is your next step? See, anytime we, we read scripture, anytime we we spend time with the Lord, I believe that there is a, uh, a call to action as a result of it. If we ever spend time face-to-face -face in, in God's Word, the Bible says that God's Word is like a mirror, and it shows us where the problems are in our life and where we need to tweak and what, what changes we need to make. If we ever spend time in God's Word, the Bible says that, and we, and we turn away and we, we aren't able to make changes, we're not able to apply it to our lives, the Bible says it's like somebody that looks in the mirror and walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So I want to challenge you guys, don't be like somebody that looks in the mirror and just forgets what he looks like. If the Lord has placed something in your life, maybe an excuse in your life where, where the enemy is stealing something from you that, that the Lord has for you, or you're pulling back in the area where you know God is telling you to go forward, if God has shown you that either tonight or this entire semester, I want to encourage you and challenge you, do not let that go and just continue living like that day after day after day. But take time and dig in and take care of it. Give it to the Lord, and he is able to carry you to the day of Christ Jesus if you will follow him and continue to rekindle that faith. So I want to ask you this around the tables. 
what is your next step? When you guys finish talking, somebody pray, and we will see you guys in January. Thank you guys so much for, for spending the semester with us.